0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I wanted to continue a discussion on the first noble truth that I've been talking about kind of slowly over the few weeks. Um, I've been talking about this aspect of Dukkha, the First Noble Truth, is the truth of Dukkha, the truth of suffering, usually translated as suffering. But as I've said in the past few weeks, that the, this translation of suffering isn't really an optimal translation, because um, Dukkha is a much broader um, thing than what we normally think of as suffering. And in fact, that's much of the topic of what I'd like to talk about today, um, just these the different ways that this dukkha can be uh, recognized and understood. Um, so that, that's I kind of like to just dive in there. The um, the Buddha mentioned and talked about that he he categorized or classified this aspect of suffering, or aspect of dukkha, or aspect of out of kilter, out of balance um, off centeredness that that 's other versions of translations for that term of dukkha he said there 's three different kinds of dukkha, and so i 'd like to spend some time looking at those today um, i 'll just mention them briefly um, and then go over them. So the first kind of dukkha is the dukkha due to pain, and then the second is the dukkha due to change. And the third is what we could just call the dukkha of existence or the dukkha of life. So this first one, and I'll give you the Pali names for these also, um, the first one, especially the first one, it's, it's kind of um, amusing in a way. The, the term for this first kind of dukkha, the dukkha due to pain, is dukkha dukkha. So it is the, it's the kind of suffering that is the obvious kind. It's the kind of suffering that we recognize obviously as suffering. And generally, it relates to the experience of unpleasant sensation. Um, that when we have unpleasant experience, we react to it. We want to push it away. We want to get rid of it. So it relates to both physical and mental pain in the body and our relationship to that. So the, um, the dukkha that the First Noble Truth is talking about is not the physical pain itself um, it's, it, or even necessarily the mental pain itself, although um, the full releasing of this dukkha the definition of that is that there is no more mental pain but for a long time there is what might be called residual mental pain you know that we just have because we're alive and have had a lot of habits of this kind of mental pain you know anger frustration depression all of these states um, they're they're unpleasant. These mental states are unpleasant. These physical states are unpleasant. It's not the unpleasantness that the that this dukkha dukkha is referring to. It's not the unpleasantness itself. It's our reaction to the unpleasantness that is this the suffering of the first noble truth. So there's a distinction between, for example, pain, physical pain. You know, you get some kind of injury in your body, some kind of you, know, you, you cut yourself with a knife or something and the body hurts with that. You know, that, that kind of physical pain is not going to go away no matter how enlightened you are. You know, the body is designed to produce pain when it's injured. So that's going to be there. But there is often, and in very subtle ways even, reactivity to that pain we cut ourselves with a knife and there's the oh I don't like that, it hurts, I want to get rid of it we are in rebellion to uh, the experience of the unpleasantness and that rebellion kind of adds a layer of suffering, that that is the suffering that mental rebellion is the suffering that this first noble truth is talking about so um, there's the one way that Gill puts it is, he'll sometimes say, well, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. So the suffering, the reactivity, reactivity is another good way to look at this dukkha of the first noble truth, that it's reactivity to pain that adds layer upon layer of suffering to our experience. You know, we cut ourselves and we, there's the pain, there's the not liking of the pain, and that in itself is, a, is, a, is an extra added piece. And we can be experiencing physical pain and not have a sense of liking or not liking it. It's just, oh, there's pain. Now, in that experience, we wouldn't, we wouldn't just you know, watch our finger bleed, we'd go take action, because we know that you know, this experience of pain needs caring for. We need to get it sutured, we need to get it... It mended but we don't have to have that reactivity about it we don't have to brace around it and we don't have to berate ourselves for having done something that created that pain so for instance you know, cutting yourself with a knife you know I did this at one point I was cutting an apple I nearly sliced the tip of my finger off and um, you know there's there's just a little bit of this you know I don't have time for this, you know. <laughs> I, I, I've got other things I need to be doing, or, you know, what am I supposed to do about this? And, well, obviously I need to get this taken care of, but boy, I don't, I don't want to go to the hospital right now. Um, all of that mental reactivity is extra. It's not necessary. And it's, you know, it's adding... Um, and we can add layer upon layer of that. Actually, you know, this is a simple, silly example. But you know, you can, you know, you can get angry at yourself for, um, for cutting yourself with a knife, and then you can get. Uh, recognizing, oh, anger's happening. Well, I'm a good Buddhist. I'm not supposed to be angry. So we can get frustrated with ourselves for being angry and then get uh, depressed about being frustrated and we just layer, 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 layer on top of unpleasant experience. We add layer upon layer of other unpleasant experience, mostly mental. And so this dukkha of the first noble truth is about all of this mental reactivity. And this is what... The understanding of the, um, the freedom from this dukkha is this freedom from mental reactivity. It's not the freedom from the physical unpleasantness. It's not the freedom from the unpleasant aspect of experience, but it's the freedom from reactivity. So that's this dukkha-dukkha, um, this obvious suffering the second kind is the dukkha due to change. This, the Pali for this is dukkha, And, you know, this is... The, the suffering that is kind of due to something pleasant ending. And we do experience a kind of suffering when something pleasant ends. Um... So the dukkha of change is that everything everything is impermanent. Everything is in flux. Even pleasant experience that we have is in flux. And so at some point that pleasant experience will end. And we will suffer over that if we have been holding on to it or if we have been... um, you know, hanging our hat on it and thinking, you know, this is what's gonna do it for me. Oh yeah, I I can control my life. I can make sure that I have nothing but pleasant experience in my life. And and we actually do in a way kind of believe that. I mean it sounds like a silly thing, but that's how we operate. We think that we should be able to construct our lives such that it will be nonstop pleasant experience. And if We have unpleasant experience. We think somehow we failed or somehow we've done something wrong. And I'm here to tell you it is not possible to have just pleasant experience in your life. And it's not a failure. It's not something you've done wrong if you are experiencing unpleasant experience. It's just life. Life is a mixture of pleasant and unpleasant experience. The clinging to the pleasant experience will result in additional dukkha, additional dissatisfaction, when that pleasant experience ends. Another way we can kind of connect with this dukkha of change, it's generally understood just as the dukkha-dukkha, the dukkha, the obvious suffering, is related to unpleasant experience. This viparinama dukkha is connected with pleasant experience. And so another way we can understand this dukkha of change is that, um, you know, when we have something pleasant, you know, we may in that having of the pleasant thing be kind of madly scrambling to make sure that we keep it as long as we keep it going as long as we can. You know, and you can see this even in in really simple, subtle ways, you know, you're having a good time. I remember when I was five years old, you know, having a good time with a friend and wanting to hold on as long as possible to that good time and being devastated when it was over because I was holding on so tightly. And we do this in, in simple ways too, you know, just little bits of how, how can I maneuver my life to make this thing last? How can I maneuver my life to make this pleasant experience last as long as it can? And so there can be that, that maneuvering, that jockeying, um, which is, is kind of acting in... Um, uh, yeah, you, you might if you if you actually can notice that maneuvering that jockeying that there's that, that the holding on to the pleasantness which is what we're doing you know there's actually some cre- some clinging around that pleasantness so that we're we're tightening around it we don't want to let it go and if you really pay attention you'll see that that tightening around actually has a quality of unpleasantness to it so the holding on to Pleasant experience. The not wanting the pleasant experience to change brings a kind of suffering. It's a subtle kind of suffering. You know, it's the, these, these three layers, of these three kinds of dukkha that I'm going to talk about, they go from the most obvious to more subtle. So this kind of dukkha of change is more subtle. It can be clear when that something pleasant ends, when it, it goes away. Then we're actually in dukkha-dukkha you know we the thing ends and we're like oh i failed i've i can't do it this right you know i'm i'm i never be happy again you know a boyfriend breaks up with you and the pleasant pleasantness of that relationship is gone and it's like i'll never be happy again you know so we we're, we're in duka duka when that pleasant experience changes if we've been holding on to it but even in the midst of that pleasant experience if we're holding on to it and thinking, yes, this is what's going to make me happy, this is how I can be happy, by keeping this experience going, then that holding on to itself is a subtle kind of, um, I want to say pollution, or, um, it, it colors or flavors the pleasantness it's like we can't really truly appreciate the pleasantness because we're holding on to it and so the um, you know the the suffering of pleasant experience partly is that we in the holding on we don't truly get to uh, ride the wave of that pleasant experience because we're so worried about it you know we're, we're we're trying to manipulate it or control it. So we're not really appreciating it in and of itself for what it is as a changing phenomenon. It's something that will come and go. So that's one way that, um, that pleasant experience, cling, holding on to pleasant experience is suffering. It's the, the clinging itself is suffering. You know, and when we... Um, We have that thing. We can also at times have a sense of anxiety or worry around losing it. And that anxiety or worry is unpleasant itself. And so again, we're back in that dukkha dukkha because we have this worry or anxiety or or subtle fear around losing that thing. So these are different ways that we can um, experience this suffering of change or this um, dukkha of change this viparinama dukkha so it's not inherent in the change itself this suffering again it's a reactivity to change it's it's the you know trying to hold on to that pleasantness in the inevitable face of its impermanence that suffering it's the suffering around the the change itself around when that pleasantness shifts to um neutral or unpleasant, the loss of that pleasant thing, the loss of, of, you know, even in simple ways, the loss of a good time with a friend. I, I remember I, I, in leaving retreats, I so loved retreats, I almost always went into a, a slight depression when I left retreats because um, I just, you know, it was like, oh, it's over. You know, oh, the retreat's over. So even in simple, subtle ways, we can experience... This suffering of change, the holding it's the clinging to the pleasantness that results in that suffering of change, not the change itself again it's this reactivity something something that 's interesting to kind of explore here um, around the suffering of pleasant experience, is how, you know, essentially, like I said before, you know, we think some, that when we're experiencing the pleasant, pleasantness, that things are right, that this is the way it's supposed to be. And we can, you know, hold on to that and think, okay, yep, this is, this is the way it's supposed to be. And so then when it becomes other than that, we kind of spiral into an opposite pattern. So I'll give you an example from my own practice around this. I had a very strong pattern of of like you know self blame one of my strongest patterns was telling myself, You're no good, you you know you're a failure, you can't do this right um, and um on retreat, I began seeing that I also had a kind of an opposite pattern that I would tell myself pretty frequently, You can do this really well, you're good at this you know you 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 know how to you know how to be. a a meditator. In fact, you're probably the best meditator here. And, you know, so there was this exaggerated self-praising going on. Now, when I was experiencing the self-praising, there was a kind of a, you know, a shoring up. It felt kind of good. It's like, yeah, I know how to do this. You know, so there's this kind of shoring up, a pleasantness around that self-praise. And then, you know, Something would happen where it would be like proof that, you know, my mind would wander. Oh, obviously I'm no good at this meditation, you know. And it would be proof that I was a complete failure. And I began to see at some point that there was a direct connection between these two states. The state of self-praise and the state of self-blame. And that actually, even though I thought, you know, the self-praise, I kind of had the idea, you know, this is how it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to think that I'm a good person. I'm supposed to think I'm good at things. And that actually wasn't so helpful. It was actually a setup. Because I felt like I had some idea or some standard around what it meant to be a good meditator. And I could never measure up to that standard. And so when I couldn't measure up to that standard, it was proof that I was a failure. And so at some point I began seeing how helpful it was to recognize the clinging or the... I, didn't, I didn't really notice the clinging around the self. The praise. I didn't notice that I was holding on to that and, and setting up this standard. It was actually the standard I was clinging to. It's like, this is what I'm supposed to be. This perfectly mindful meditator, never losing track of any thing. And there was no way to measure up to that. So I didn't really see that I was clinging to that and holding on to that as an identity that I wanted to be. I noticed that it felt good when I, yes, I'm, I'm good at this, I'm okay at this. But at some point, seeing the link between the two, seeing essentially that one was the setup for the other, I began to get really, really mindful I decided, you know, I really need to pay attention to this self-praise phenomenon. I need to notice when that's happening. And not just, you know, take it as, this is the way it's supposed to be. And so I started really paying attention to that. Just noticing. And, and I just used a simple noting. Yep, praising. Praising is happening. I'm praising myself again. So it's kind of the difference between noticing it as a phenomenon and believing it. You know, kind of believing, yes, I am a good person. I, I, I can measure up to this standard that I've set for myself. I'm okay because I, in this moment, feel like I am measuring up to that standard. So, the, the, um, you know, just noticing that that was happening, noticing that the praising was happening, that kind of projection to belief began to get weaker. And as I did this exploration the self-blaming correspondingly began to fall away. It it I really I mean I had been paying a lot of attention to the self-blaming, but when I began to pay attention to both sides, so this is essentially the change, right? This is the change from certain kinds of pleasant experience to certain kinds of unpleasant experience. When I began to notice this this is a phenomenon of change the whole thing began to get much weaker so it was it was really helpful to to notice kind of the two sides so if you have a particular pattern or a particular kind of stuckness where you feel yeah, yeah you're really s- suffering with um, with one kind of pattern you might just see if from time to time the opposite is in there as well and that you know you, you have this belief that well, that opposite is what it's supposed to be like. It can be, uh, um, you know, there can be a kind of a, what do you want to say? It can, be, it can feel threatening to let go of that, uh, that, that positive opposite. I mean, my, my self-praising. It, it, you know, it's like, if I'm not praising myself, my, my belief or idea was, if I'm not praising myself, then I'm going to be in the dumps. But actually, that wasn't the case. It actually ended up being much more balanced when there's not the self-praise and not the self-blame. It's just like living life. It's just life unfolding. No particular need to praise or blame myself for anything. So, um, just that's an inter- it's an interesting dynamic to look at around this dukkha of change. Then the third kind is this dukkha of existence. The term for this is sankara dukkha. And sankara, the term sankara means um, kind of things coming into being, the formation of things. So this is just kind of, you know, everything in experience is coming into formation whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And so this kind of of suffering dukkha encompasses the other two. It encompasses the coming into being, the suffering of the coming into being of unpleasantness, the suffering of the coming into being of pleasantness, and how we hold on to that and try to manipulate it. And this sankara dukkha also includes some really subtle levels of suffering. It's... Um, I kind of like to think of it as the Buddhist version of existential anxiety. You know, it's the, it's the really subtle levels of unease of just like, you know, here's this life that I'm living, is this all there is? You know, it's kind of the sense of living life, you know, this kind of process of taking care of yourself and buying yourself food and going to work to earn money to buy yourself food and to put a house over your head so that you can go to work and then you can come home to that house and then you do it all over again day after day after day until you die. It just is endless. That's that sense of Sankara dukkha. That is, what's the point? Um... kind of this, this and and the the kind of burdensome nature of just taking care of yourself and just like yeah i mean every day you got to feed yourself you got to find a way to get the money to buy the food to cook the food to eat it to clean up to buy the food <laughs> it's just kind of the nature of life has these burdens to them that we just have to take care of this body and if you don't take care of the body, you do really suffer. If you don't feed the body, you really suffer you know you don't um, so that there's this this kind of you know cycle of taking care of things. so um, one way to look at this is um, you know if we are living our lives for the purpose of feeding ourselves, earning money, putting a house over our heads, if that's our purpose then we'll probably have some sense that this isn't a very satisfying purpose to just be on this wheel of keeping this body going and so you know the the um, one way to uh, kind of begin to shift is to reorient this whole process around waking uh, around living to have another purpose, and that purpose can be different for for each of us, you know but I think in some way the purpose to understand. Our experience, understand what's happening for us. This understanding itself can be a kind of a purpose. And you know, other people, some people might might have a purpose in um, serving others. Um, but finding something that you resonate with to kind of you know all of this work to support the living is done in order that we can serve others or in order that we can wake up ourselves so that we can be more compassionate, ethical beings. And I mean, there's so much suffering in the world. Just the, the waking up, just the willingness to engage in ethical conduct is a huge gift to the whole world. I mean the the world is in such misery I mean a, a glance at the newspaper every day shows you you know just how much suffering there is in this world and you know a lot of that suffering shown in the newspapers anyway a lot of it is about people engaging in unethical conduct so if even the simple act of you know being interested in exploring ethical conduct is a gift to the world. Because, if, I mean, just imagine, if everybody engaged in refraining from killing, even just that one thing, if everybody engaged in refraining from killing, how much different this world would be? If people refrained from taking what was not theirs, how much different would this world be? So, you know, these these this action of having a purpose of ethical conduct... It's kind of like, it's a purpose in a way to support the relieving of this suffering. And So this, this kind of purpose can support, uh, it's kind of like a reframing of why we're doing things. Instead of being for the sake of feeding ourselves and earning money to feed ourselves and earning money to buy a house in order to be able to sleep there, to go back to work the next day, in order to be able to come home to that house instead of it just being this cycle of self-referential things, that can kind of, we can kind of take ourselves out of that by having a purpose that has some meaning to us. So as the other two, the um, Dukkha Dukkha and the Viparinama Dukkha were related to different aspects of feeling, the, the Dukkha Dukkha being related to Unpleasant experience, the viparariinamaduka being related to pleasant experience. this Sankara dukkha can be understood to also be related to neutral experience. Um, you know, just the neutral aspect of having to feed yourself, of having I mean, this, sometimes it doesn't feel so neutral, but it's just kind of the act of life. The, the act of taking care of yourself can be a neutral thing. It doesn't have to be either um, unpleasant or pleasant. It's just simply the fact of needing to feed ourselves so that we can move on with life. So it can be very interesting to explore our relationship to neutral experience, as as with the others. You know, with Dukkha Dukkha, explore your relationship to unpleasant. With the Dukkha of Change, with Viparinama Dukkha, explore your relationship to pleasant. Are you holding on to it? Are you afraid it 's going to go away what 's your relationship to pleasant experience with this Sankara dukkha it 's interesting to explore what 's your relationship to neutral experience? This can be a very interesting thing to look at I mean most of us don 't pay much attention to neutral experience hence it 's neutral you know it's, we don 't notice it too much. We tend to i think in our um, in our uh, Approach to life, we tend to like feeling things. You know, we like, particularly like feeling pleasant things. But, you know, if we're really honest about it, we'd probably rather feel something unpleasant than just be in a place where things are neutral. So, this in your relationship to neutral, often we get bored. Or again, we think we're doing something wrong. Or we get depressed. When, when there's neutral experience happening. So neutral is a very interesting one to look at. Um, and, you know, the neutral, the place of neutral, as we begin to explore our experience... You know, we begin to notice all the reactivity of the unpleasantness and the holding on to and fear of losing the pleasant as we, you know, explore these. And like I said, these are layers of of dukkha, more obvious dukkha-dukkha, a little less obvious, a little more subtle, the uh, dukkha of change. This lower level of dukkha, the, the dukkha of existence or this dukkha related to neutral experience is even more subtle. So as we let go, as we we begin to explore the obvious kinds of dukkha, they can begin to fall away for us. You know, we have unpleasant experience and we're no longer so reactive to it. We have pleasant experience and we're just willing to let it come and go, as it comes and goes. And so our life becomes a flow between pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And actually there's a lot more neutral happening in our lives than... um, you know, as the as the practice begins to unfold, there's a lot more neutral happening, and it's kind of like we need to learn to acquire a taste for this experience of neutral. Um, it um, it can be a place of just you know calmness, you know, not much is happening, and that's okay. You know, it's okay that not much is happening. Peace is in that space. But, you know, it, it, peace can be a, a, an acquired taste, actually. I mean, we can take peace for a short time, but, you know, after a short time, we want something more like like real bliss or joy or happiness. Or, you know, it's like, what is this peace, you know? Yeah, so I feel good, but, you know, isn't there something else here? So it's kind of like needing to uh, learn the, the just the, um, the pleasantness of neutral. And in my own experience, at least, you know, I tend to be the kind of person that was really reactive to unpleasant, and I would go around creating unpleasant to react to it. You know, and if something was pleasant, I'd be well, yeah, like I'm happy now, but you know, I know really why I'm I'm really miserable. So, <laughs> you know, so I would go around creating, you know, unpleasant experience and un- and being really miserable, and exploring that with mindfulness being aware of that miserableness, of that suffering of anger, the suffering of frustration, the suffering of irritation, the suffering of, of cruelty, the suffering of miserableness. When I got really familiar with that kind of suffering, when I got to neutral, it's like, oh yeah, this actually, this is good. know, <laughs> This actually feels pretty good. And it doesn't actually have to go over to the To the bliss or to the, you know, being ecstatically happy or, you know, it can just be, yeah, it's just peaceful here. So the learning about the other two sides and the clinging, the holding, how the holding creates that sense of, you know, just things are off, things are not right. We begin to acquire a taste for that neutral, for that place of peace, that place of calm. And that's a doorway to a deep kind of freedom that, uh, that non-reactivity to neutral and it's a subtle kind of reactivity I mean it's a really subtle kind of reactivity so I'm going to stop there and see what kinds of comments or thoughts or questions you might have about what I've said about this just just while i'm is that good enough? yeah, can yeah I think we can just while you. I'm listening to you, I'm thinking um, I'm a very um not always but a lot of time a very unreflective person, and um, how do you how do you carve out more time to be reflective? i don't know i I walk a lot myself and that and that's a time for reflection in a way uh, but um, I, I so I have a lot to say about this okay. um, <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know you know maybe i'll write this question down. you know this would make a good talk <laughs> um, so this basically touches into. A question that comes up a lot. Um, You know, it seems as though this practice of reflection, of awareness, takes time. And because of that, in our busy schedules, We don't tend to do it. (laughs) There's other things. I mean, buying food, earning money, you know, all of the things I was talking about, Sankara Dukkha. All of that stuff has to happen, right? I mean, we can't live our lives without doing all that such stuff. And so there can be this sense that there's no room for reflection. Um, So there's different kinds of reflection. Um, But just the simple mindfulness... can be very light. And one thing that I really encourage, when I, I talk a lot about how to bring this practice into the midst of our day, not trying to carve out time to do it, but actually as you're cooking, as you're cleaning, as you're washing, as you're working, as you're going through the grocery store, being mindful, being, being attentive, noticing what's happening in your mind and body. Um, it's challenging, Because, like in sitting meditation, we have some reminders about um, remembering to be mindful. You know, at the very least, we're sitting kind of still. And that's, you know, if our mind wanders off, we're drifting off, and we wake up and we realize we're still sitting in this room with other people. And it's like, oh yeah, I was meditating, you know. So there's that reminder of sitting still in a room with other people, or sitting still in your home in this one place. That helps you to remember, or if you're paying attention to the breath, the fact that you've stopped paying attention to the breath is a reminder. We lose all of these reminders in our daily lives, and so it's harder. It's much harder. But there's a there's a way to engage with mindfulness in daily life. Um, that, that I mean, so that the mindfulness itself is a kind of reflection, just. How do I feel right now? What's happening right now? It's not the kind of reflection thinking about so much. I mean, that that you may have to carve out time for in your walk, you know. Um, but the mindfulness itself is a kind of a reflection. It's a, it's a reflection of how is my body and mind right now? And we don't often take the time to do that because we're so busy planning or, you know, thinking ahead. And I'd like to propose, actually, that a lot of the ways that we use our minds in our daily life are unnecessary. You know, the the things we have to do, we have to do. We need to go to the grocery store. We need to cook our food. We need to clean our house. We need to go to work to earn the money. We need to do those things. But there's so much in our minds that is busy thinking about the same things over and over and over I mean, if you listen to your, your thoughts, you know, it's like, yeah, I told myself that 15 times already. You know, do I need to tell myself again? You know, there's, there's a way that our minds have this habit of just telling ourselves, a se- our story of us over and over again. Oh, yeah, I'm the kind of person that likes to cook this kind of food. I really like this kind of food. This is... And, you know, if I could have a party, we could, I could make this food and then other people could share it with me and I could be even, you know that would be great to share this with. And we're not paying attention to the making of the food. And all of that is, you know, it's kind of irrelevant, all of that stuff. So, you know, again, this this is, you know, our minds have figured out ways to make us, delude us into thinking that we're happy, sometimes I mean like that just fantasy I created on the spur of the moment you know that's a kind of a happy fantasy oh yeah I can invite these friends over and share this food with them and they'll all really enjoy it and they'll get to see something wow you know this is a really interesting combination mint mango and egg salad wow that's so cool I want to share it with the world it's a happy fantasy so you know it kind of puts a little bit of pleasure in your life and that's its hook you know, that's kind of why we get hooked to that, is because it brings a little bit of pleasantness. But it's an ephemeral pleasantness. It's a it's a pleasantness that may, you know, I mean, it's a pleasantness of, of fantasy. It's a pleasantness of thinking about. And so in the letting go of that, I mean, there can be a sense of, why do I want to let go of that? That feels good to have that fantasy. Um, because it is... It's a kind of a diluted kind of happiness, in a way. And there are deeper uh, kinds of happinesses to be found. And there is a deeper kind of happiness that can be found in just cutting the mango, in just washing the mint, in just making the egg salad. It's more neutral. But it's just you know, this peacefulness of not having a mind that's busy, it's a it's a pleasantness, and so you know the, the the recognizing how much the mind is busy, and just you know when you notice that in that moment, oh here I am making my egg salad. It doesn't have to be a kind of a holding on to the mindfulness. I think that's one of the that's one of the things that people get confused about in daily life practice. You know, when you remember about mindfulness, it's like oh gotta hold on to it now. You know. I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to be mindful. And in my experience, it's much more about moments in daily life. The, the moment of being mindful, and then however long that lasts. And then, you know, then you'll get lost. You'll go off and do other things. You'll forget. You'll go off into your fantasies, and you'll wake up again. And in the waking up, recognize, oh, here I am, I'm back. Mindfulness has come back. And so this recognizing of mindfulness, this is actually one of the, the, um, the biggest practices that I do in daily life is recognizing that mindfulness is here. Um, Mindfulness conditions mindfulness. And so the recognizing when you are mindful conditions that more mindfulness will happen. And in daily life, you know, actually mindfulness appears way more often than you think. You know, mindfulness comes up And what we do with that is, you know, oh, we recognize we're doing something. It's like, oh, cutting the egg. Oh, it's kind of still got some of that stuff on the outside. So, you know, we lose cutting the egg. We've come into mindfulness for a moment around cutting the egg. And then we notice something about that egg and want to do something about it. And so we're off. We've leapt off of the present moment and the experience of the present moment into thinking and doing and responding to. So there's been a split second of awareness of mindfulness And we lose it. We don't recognize it. We don't notice it. So this practice of recognizing or noticing when mindfulness happens begins to point out to us that it actually happens a lot more than we think it does. And um, it's effortless, the arising of mindfulness. You don't have to do a thing to have it happen. It just happens spontaneously. And so there's a little bit of extra um, kind of connecting that, oh, here's mindfulness. thats It's not a lot of effort to do that. So there's a little bit of effort to, to actually recognize, oh, mindfulness has come back. You don't need to hold on to it at that point in daily life. Just recognize, oh, mindfulness has come back. And um, appreciate it. You know, just rec- recognize what's happening here and now and go on with your life and then recognize the next one and the next one and the next one. And If you do this kind of practice, you'll actually see that there's way more mindfulness in your day than you thought. So there's way more opportunity for this kind of simple reflection of and what's happening here and now. And it doesn't actually need carving out time to do it. It happens in the midst of making egg salad, in the midst of driving the car to work or whatever. Um, So that's just a few... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I teach whole retreats on this topic. <laughs> and if you're interested in this type of exploration, twice a year I teach a daily life practice exploration. It's a kind of intensive or a retreat. I give instructions on how to practice in daily life on Sunday afternoon, and then we meet morning and evening during the week to, uh, to explore and talk about, well, how do we do this? And just the container, it, it's usually about 30 people come, show up for this, and just the container of being with other people who are engaged with this and hearing how people are engaging with it. It's like it gives you ideas. Oh, yeah, I could do that when I brush my teeth. Or, oh, yeah, I could do that when I'm driving my car. You know, just it, So it begins to kind of build the momentum. And then we have a day-long on Saturday. And so the next one will be in August. So if you're interested... In,
1: go ahead Sue so really appreciate your going um, the first noble truth in detail I really got it (laughs) 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 Uh,
0: I've got more on the first noble truth we're not done yet (laughs) (laughs) so far I really
1: enjoy your daily practice you know the uh, your lesson. So, uh-huh. Uh-huh. so it's my, my life has changed.
0: Since I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. It, it, it's transformative. This practice is transformative and it can transform us in the midst of our lives. That's what I discovered. You know, in my early, early days of practice, I wasn't even interested in sitting down to meditate, but I was interested in understanding my mind. And boy, it was transformative to just be aware of what's happening. In our daily life, it's really hugely helpful.
1: So change to the positive. And then what what it happened is a lot of hindrance. I am recognizing. That's good. <laughs> That's I didn't good. recognize before much. You know, kind of just uh, uh, much unpleasant or, or I feel bad about it. But uh, doing this um, uh, daily practice, then... The hindrance, each one by one, it reveals. Uh, yes, one by one. I said, "Why?" <laughs> I mean, this one thing is slopper and topper. You know that that's a lot of time, and this restless, restlessness. Yes, restless. Even uh,
0: daily life. Then yeah. I oh yeah, daily technology. life restlessness is huge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I'm really happy that you're starting to see them because, you know, with, like you said, you weren't seeing them before, but they were there. They were there. It's not that the mindfulness has created them. It's allowing you to see them. And before, when you're not seeing them, you know, it's like that, it's like that dukkha is just running your life. It's, running, it's making your choices for you. You know, that, that restlessness is making you churn and do things. It's, you know, it, but when you see it, with mindfulness, you have the opportunity to allow it to just do its thing as opposed to allow it to, to have it do you. Mm-hmm. you know, the, the hindrances tend to do us. But when we can be mindful of them, they can just be phenomenon that, you know. oh, there's restlessness and there it's gone. You know? And it may last for five seconds or it may last for an hour. But we can just be there with it. And you know, we don't have to be driven by it to, to take action on it. When we act out of those hindrances, unconsciously, you know when we, we, we act out of those hindrances, it tends to reinforce them.
1: Act on it, okay. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the suffering is, um, in the meditation that i Feel this uh, restless uh-huh. for I mean whole thirty minutes uh-huh. it's just keep going uh-huh. and and thoughts over another thoughts and then I excited very excited and or you know did did not like it I do recognize those things uh-huh. but still it's keep
0: going I mean it, the energy has become so much. So one thing you can do with that kind of restlessness, I mean, you're noticing the mental aspect of that kind of restlessness, the thoughts, the kind of spinning thoughts and the excitement or the, the not liking of the spinning thoughts. So you're noticing the mental side. Often there's a physical experience in restlessness too. So um, it can be pretty unpleasant, I'll tell you. You know, I can feel like, you know, jumping beans under the body, like it's just miserable to try to sit still. And sometimes I find it helpful to stand or do walking meditation when the body gets excessively restless like that, but sometimes too, just the recognition of energy you know sometimes it 's just a simple energy that 's propelling the mind into restlessness, and when that energy is met it 's kind of just like the energy of life, and it 's just oh, actually, this is kind of an enlivening experience in, in li- enlivening mm-hmm. it it uh, brings the You know, it brings the mind into more clarity. And so you can maybe use that energy instead to just notice that energetic experience and and it can bring more clarity. So play with it. Play with seeing if there's a physicality to the restlessness and see whether you can um, sit with that or not. I mean sometimes that physical restlessness can be really hard to sit with. And you know, if it's really hard to sit with, you can do some walking meditation or or something, but see if you can be with that energy instead of with the th- the thoughts around it. So there's about one minute if there's uh, any other and no there's not one minute anymore. it's done <laughs> <laughs> so I'll continue with this topic next week <laughs> well and we're, i my my idea was to go through the whole four noble truths. Uh, in this kind of detail, because we don't often, you know, we, we'll give a talk on the Four Noble Truths, but that, you know, 40 minutes on the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha taught the, the Four Noble Truths was the whole frame of everything he taught, and so we can kind of touch into all the teachings through, through this framework. And Did that work? The Four Noble Truths? Oh, I thought you said, sure, silver. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I, I was mumbling. <laughs> the, four, the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> So so thank you all. (laughs)